ladies and gentlemen, we are back with another edition of the People's Podcast Corner Kick, or unfortunately, as we have to call it in this day and age, Quarantine Kick, as uh, the three of us are still at home and our in-home studios recording the pod due to the uh, unfortunate coronavirus, COVID-19 pandemic that is still uh, out and about in the world. Uh, We hope you're all safe, but we are going to bring a little light into your day by talking about some soccer. And with me, I have Nathan Strauss. Hello. Pleasure to be here. Caleb Rhodes, rounding out the threesome. What's up? And for the very first time, we have a special guest. He is the sports editor at the YDN, the Yale Daily News, Bill Gallagher. Bill, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you guys? Doing well, doing well. Crazy, crazy time, especially with no soccer to watch, uh, as we were talking about off air. But um, we do have a little bit of news before we dive into our uh, more uplifting topics today. Nathan, do you want to get into this uh, England non-league football news for us? Yeah, so it came out today that the English FA has canceled the remainder of the season for all teams below the Vanarama level, which is the fifth tier of English soccer. So the way that they're going about things is they're canceling the season. All results mean nothing, basically. And they're essentially planning on just replaying um, this season whenever uh, whenever the next season gets underway. So no promotion, no relegation um, for these leagues, most of which are regional, uh, like the Isthmian uh, League. It's 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 it seems to me like what's what's more most important about this announcement is that it might be a preview of what's to come uh, for next year if this season, if the Premier League and the Championship and League One and League Two uh, can't get finished. The, the, the FA now has a precedent of perhaps what they might do in that situation. Right. Caleb, in last episode, we talked about several ways in which we hypothesized this season, this current season, uh, could end. We discussed maybe starting the season in the winter or the new season in the winter and playing out the remainder of the season towards the back end of the summer and the fall. But with just the, the straight up cancellation and voiding of a season, could you see that as a possibility for I understand this is non-league soccer, so there's not as many big business ties. But could you see something like this happening to the Premier League or big leagues around the world? I mean, in a sense, it's the simplest solution. So it has that going for it. Um, I think a lot of teams would still feel aggrieved, um, certainly, because the teams are just different now than they were at the beginning of the season, especially after winter transfers and managerial changes. And teams like maybe Manchester United would feel like they were well on the pace of getting a Champions League spot, particularly as Tottenham sort of continues to fall and Bruno Fernandes has really given them a lift. So, I mean, it's an elegant solution, but it's it's not, let's not pretend that it's like a just or particularly good solution either. I don't know. Right. And Bill, you are a Chelsea fan, is that correct? Uh, yes, I am. True blue. So, <laughs> so... Uh, as a supporter of a team who is firmly in the hunt for a Champions League place and uh, batting off sides like Manchester United and Wolverhampton Wanderers uh, from that fourth place spot, potentially that fifth place spot, depending on the repercussions of Man City's transgressions. Uh, and don't forget about the Blades. Right. And Sheffield United, uh, shockingly, right, yeah. making a run at European football. Uh, what are your thoughts about this season just being null and void and having to start from scratch at the beginning of next season? 
Well, I think we need to take that with extreme caution just because um, it's a potential possibility doesn't mean it actually will be followed through. Um, I think at some point uh, earlier this week, uh, you had Southampton's um, executive actually say that it's more likely that they'll just play the games behind closed doors, if anything. I think the Premier League is very much, uh, I think, the best league in the world. So you're going to want all the games to be played to completion, whether it's behind closed doors or with uh, fans. Obviously, the preferred solution is to have fans. Uh, but uh, I don't know. I, I, I think certainly as a Chelsea fan, uh, it's tough. I Honestly, I could take it or leave it. We've been so sort of stagnant this year that maybe a break would be nice just for us to like gather our troops and like have a crack at it next year. Um, but uh, we'll see. I, I, I mean, the team, I can't believe I'm saying this. The team I'd really feel horrible for is Liverpool just because they have waited, oh my God, 30 years or something. And uh, that, that would just be awful. Right. I think this benefits teams towards the bottom of the table who are in danger of getting relegated. The Norwiches, the Watfords, of the world. I think the teams that this really hurts are the Liverpools. Uh, unfortunately, my team are once again, uh, through no fault of their own this time, Steven Gerrard slip, notwithstanding, uh, <laughs> <laughs> are finding themselves uh, somehow not being awarded the Premier League title. If this was to play out, obviously, like I mentioned before, there are several big business implications uh, that would need to be negotiated if the Premier League was just to void the entirety of this past season. And I think it is, uh, Bill, as you were saying, it is unlikely that uh, something like this is going to happen. And I think we are going to see something like the remainder of the matches being played uh, behind closed doors um, without fans, as sad as that is, uh, to lift a trophy in an empty stadium. But I think that is the best solution. And while it's sad for these non-league uh, clubs, I saw that the, there was a side, the Jersey Bulls in Jersey, in England, who were had played 27 and won 27 in their league, uh, which is astounding. And the fact that all that hard work for them is just going to be null and void is, is heartbreaking. But I, I can't see this happening in the uh, upper echelon of the game. Yeah, I think there are a few logistical issues as well. Um, just in, 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 you know, players will have been isolated for you know the better part of a month or two and i i wonder how the fa would go about getting teams in shape because obviously it's unrealistic to expect a normal top flight performance from a team that hasn't been able to train together in in weeks or months like i i know all of these players i'm sure are keeping fit at their own house or some squads are like united are planning on having training behind closed doors in in violation of some public health experts, but I do think that there are logistical problems no matter what the FA decides to do. And I hope that the FA's eventual solution doesn't jeopardize any player's personal health for the sake of finishing the season. Because I think that what would happen is if one player, you know, was carrying symptoms without showing them and then played, you know, three matches over the course of two weeks, then you end up with the entire Premier League having to be re-shut down again, and it makes the FA look bad. So I hope that this season is able to be played to completion. I just hope that they wait the appropriate amount of time and in a very un-English way, proceed with complete and total caution rather than go back to tradition. Well, one one funny thing is, you know, a team that might advance, get 
get an advantage from playing without fans is, you know, Manchester City, who don't play with fans anyway. Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Classic. Um, but, but one thing I'll add is, you know, we know that there was just the story yesterday or even today about how the Atalanta-Valencia game, the first leg in Milan, like a month ago, where like a huge amount of people from Bergamo went to um, Milan, which was hosting the game, to play, watch them Atalanta play Valencia is now like ground zero for like the entire outbreak in Italy. So definitely like... I believe a medical official called it a biological bomb. Right. So if there was any like doubt about whether sporting events could contribute to, um, you know, this issue... Like, this is the evidence. And also, it's because of that game that now, like, half the Valencia squad has tested positive for coronavirus. So, like, the players are remain very much at risk, even if games resume play behind doors also. Right. And I think just the main takeaway from this, discu- this discussion is that we are in uncharted territory with soccer being such a traditional sport. It is sort of bound and tied to uh, a traditional way of thinking and a... And a a sort of formulaic system that we've experienced year in, year out. So we are in kind of untested waters for this sport and how to resolve um, a season that is already two-thirds of the way done. Uh, We are going to move on uh, to brighter pastures and brighter topics, and we are going to start today by talking about our most unpopular hot-take football opinions. Obviously, Nathan Strauss has uh, shared a number of these uh, hot takes on this podcast uh, for the past three years, but uh, we thought that we would give you some of our own sort of maybe unique opinions on the game. And we're going to start with uh, Caleb Rhodes. Caleb Rhodes, what is your most unpopular football opinion? So I don't know if this is unpopular. It might actually end up being a pretty popular take. Um, But generally, when we're talking about European football, we talk about, you know, the top five leagues which are traditionally, you know, Spain, England, Germany, Italy, and France. But I propose that we should no longer include France in this list, and we should only talk about uh, the top four leagues. And I will argue this with numbers. So uh, UEFA comes out with the UEFA coefficient every year, which ranks the leagues. And this is mainly based off of um, performance of teams in the Champions League and Europa League. And so Spain pretty clearly you know, leads the way, you know, it helps when you win the Champions League like four out of the last five years um, with like a score of 99 on the coefficient. Then it's England with like 88, um, Germany with 71, Italy with 68, and then France only have 56. And it's interesting to note <laughs> that oh my. France are actually closer to Portugal in sixth than they are to Italy in fourth. And so I think that we should really start talking about um, the French league in closer, you know, contact with the Portuguese league, the Russian league, the Belgian league, and the Dutch league, rather than the uh, top four. Um, yeah, and I think, and I think, if we start to talk about the French league in this way, it will lessen the allure of players going to PSG, which will then ultimately lead to the French league being more competitive again which will ultimately end up raising the standard of play, at which point we can assess whether the French League 
should now again be considered a top five league or not. I mean, it's still top five technically, but I don't think we should. It's it's now in a different tier. So where do you stand on the on league uh, PSG and Marseille and those clubs? Well, Caleb, you're not wrong in that the French league is definitely a tier below the other uh, big four leagues in Europe. But I, I think you might be giving yourself a little bit too much power when you're saying actually by reclassifying them as not a top five team, we're going to be able to rebalance the competitiveness of the league. The issue of the French league is simply just comes down to money and that there's only one team with any money in France, and that's PSG. I, I don't know how the French um, soccer authorities are able to sort of get you know more investment into clubs. I, it's just no one feels to put money into, say, Angers or Dijon to the same extent that, you know, uh, the Saudi princes bought um, Sheffield United um, last year or the year before. And I think that is something that France is lacking. I, I don't I don't know where I'm going with this, but I think maybe it's sort of there's no hope is what I might be going for. So it might be even more drastic than what you're saying. But I, I stand by that 100 percent. Yeah, I think if you look at the dynamic of the other clubs in the leagues, aside from the aside from Lyon, Marseille, and PSG, it more closely resembles the Portuguese league or the Eredivisie or you know the the Belgian the Jupiler league in that it's primarily a selling league. You have this sort of like trickle up effect where PSG and Lyon and Marseille buy the best and most talented players from smaller teams like Lille who in turn have poached these younger players from clubs like Clermont or Le Havre or, or whatnot. And that's something that you don't see, even with the smaller teams in La Liga, it's not as if a team can survive in La Liga by being this sort of selling team, because you would just get relegated. Pretty much top to bottom in La Liga and the Premier League, there are squads that are built to compete. Realistically, I mean, I'm sure there's... I don't know, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I'm sure that there's a lot more variation in terms of which teams challenge for spots in any given year in these more competitive leagues than there are in, in France. So I definitely think that from a, a transfer and from a market perspective, France is much more similar to these smaller leagues as well. Right. And my mind gets cast back to when that um, Russian billionaire and his group purchased Monaco. In, when they were in the second division earlier in this decade, like very early on, and they achieved promotion very quickly and they acquired uh, a lot of players with European pedigree. And even now, that project is still, while it's kind of stumbled um, in the past couple of years, they still have players like Cesc Fabregas and they had Mbappe and uh, and now they have Golovin. So they, do, they still there is still competitive talent in the French League. I think it is... Uh, what Bill is saying, where is PSG are the only club with the maximum financial firepower to really uh, compete with the likes of Juventus, the Bayern Munichs, the Manchester Cities, the Liverpools, um, the Barcelona and Real Madrids. And I don't think the closest, I think the closest uh, richest ownership group in the French league is Marseille, uh, who are owned by American ownership. And I don't think they can really firepower right right but this is this is this is part of my logic that by talking about ligoon as if it is a tier below and not giving it the honor of being a top five league um 
then that will disincentivize people from going to PSG, which I think. But, but Caleb, the, the question is PSG, like, PSG, what? How do what, you though? stop then the money um, that PSG has to stop spending on players? So the issue is then basically the French league is uncompetitive for the top spot. So you're ne- so effectively by reclassifying as as something below top five, it doesn't make any difference is what I'm trying to say. Right. I think players will still be attracted to go to PSG, even if it's not classified as a quote unquote top but five league. I'm not, because- sh- I'm not sure that they will though. And I sort of brought something up via text a few days ago about, you know, the potential future of Kylian Mbappe, but it's entirely possible that once Mbappe and Neymar both leave PSG, people are going to look back on Which Neymar's time. Right. And, and people are going to look back on Neymar's time there and say, what was he doing? Leaving Barcelona for PSG wasn't just a lateral transfer. It was a demotion. In order to be considered a truly elite player, you can't just walk your way to six Ligue 1 titles, a couple of the five domestic cups that France has or whatever, and like Champions League quarterfinal appearances. You need to be playing in either Bayern Dortmund, a, a top three or four team in Italy, or a top three or four team in, in England or Spain. I France just doesn't make the braid. I think, unfortunately, for PSG, this conversation would be altered tremendously if they had gone on and won the Champions League this season. Obviously, we have yet to see what the resolution is to the Champions League this season. But I think the thing that has eluded this PSG product from achieving what we would, or what I would consider completion, uh, obviously, they've won uh, countless amounts of league titles, cup titles, French domestic titles. But I think and purchasing Neymar and purchasing Mbappe and getting players like Cavani, Icardi, Verratti, uh, Marquinhos, Thiago Silva, these big European players who could be winning domestic titles in quote-unquote more elite leagues. I think the thing that PSG really need to do in order to solidify their status and potentially solidify the status of Ligue 1 is go on and win that Champions League, which I think Neymar kind of wanted. He set out to do that by leaving Barcelona to go to PSG. Obviously, the money was one thing, and he's getting paid a tremendous amount by being part of the PSG setup. But you have to remember that PSG is a massive brand uh, who are partnered with the Jordan brand. They have that Jordan connection, that Nike connection. Uh, the PSG logo is everywhere. The PSG like has become, the Paris hoodie has become like a fashion trend in and of itself. So there is, PSG has become something greater than just Liga. He, I feel like Neymar sort of wanted a place where he could comfortably exist with his entourage, where like the pressure of the daily football routine wasn't going to be what was most important to the fans. Like he wanted a place where he could go, where he could disappear for a week to go to his sister's birthday party in Brazil if he wanted to, without worrying that he would jeopardize a league championship. And for better or for worse, it's definitely affected how... I view him as a player and as a person, sort of similar to how uh, Oscar's move to China, I'm sure, altered a lot of fans' perception, but on a lesser scale. Right. I mean, I think the Neymar going to his sister's birthday party in Brazil and then getting injured for the rest of the season and then still winning Ligue 1 is, I think, like the perfect demonstration of the lifestyle that it enables him to have. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe we should move on to the next hot take. I don't know. Nathan, do you have one? Yeah, I have one. And I, I'm going to give you guys the opportunity to choose between which one you want to discuss, because both of which, both of these we've talked about in the past. So my first one is, I think that RB Leipzig 
and a club with the corporate branding of RB Leipzig has a place in modern football if they use their resources correctly. And the other option is I want to discuss the ethics of Luis Suarez's handball against Ghana in 2010. Which would you prefer to discuss? Hmm. Wait, but what's what's your what's your opinion? Of you Su- uh, I think that while Suarez cheated in in getting the ha- in committing that handball infraction, the fact that he did it deliberately and Ghana then missed means that he shouldn't be vilified more for what his action. Like he committed a penalty, was then penalized, and then Ghana didn't take advantage of it. Well, the issue though is that it sort of violates the spirit of the game, and as in a sport where fair play is so important, I, I mean, I think it's completely legitimate that fans the world over can criticize Suarez for that handball, even though he did get penalized. Is that different than say like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's famous uh, red card where he sprinted like fifty yards to? deny a clear goal scoring opportunity and then got sent off? Like, is it, is it because it's a handball on the goal line that makes it different? Is it because it was like a world cup quarterfinal? I'm genuinely curious. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to like uh, be confrontational. Well, it's very interesting because as well, I think when, when, when was it? It was February when Valverde ran back in the Spanish uh, newly remodded um, super cup and he committed the same uh, sort of tackle sort of, last ditch behind the, the the player and he got sent off and i think it was against atletico and simeone said that was probably the greatest tackle ever and he got mad of the match for that so it is interesting for sure i think by i think there's something related to the hand that makes it slightly darker i mean right you, you, you I, yeah, think exactly. of like maradona and the hand of god as well and that i mean that's an, obviously this is soccer so it's not that uh, moral in that sense, but I mean, it's truly an evil act in the realm of uh, the soccer pitch. Yeah, I think you you were hitting on something there, Nathan. Where the stage of where it happened in the World Cup, it's just such a prestigious tournament, and the fact that it was in Africa, Ghana were the last African nation uh, to be eliminated um, in that competition in South Africa in 2010. I think just it was a conflation of circumstance. And the fact that Suarez so deliberately, I think there's something to be said about Valverde and even Ole, his last ditch attempt. They were trying to prevent something from happening in within the rules of the game. Suarez preventing a goal using his hand is not doing it in, like Bill was saying, the spirit of the game. He was doing it in sort of a way that he knew would get him penalized, but a way that he also knew was just completely breaking what is essentially like the most fundamental rule of soccer, like do not use your hand. Yeah. I think also it doesn't help that it's Suarez who did this. Um, <laughs> just because I, villain. Right, I, I just feel like if, if it was some player who did this and afterwards he was like, I, I don't even know what came over me, you know, just representing Uruguay has just been the, the love of my life. And in that moment, I, I felt like I had a patriotic duty to do. You'd be like, okay, dude, like, I don't really buy that, but okay. But with Suarez, like, this is a person who has routinely bit opponents over the course <laughs> of his career. Um, and, and, you know, is known to, you know, skirt the rules a little bit. So I think 
whatever sort of charitable interpretation we might be willing to give to someone who does this, with him, it's harder to interpret it as like a noble act. And um, because, I mean, he was, he there's a video of him standing, yeah, he stands on the tunnel with his like shirt in his hands and then celebrates like very, very intensely when the penalty goes off the bar. Which is just not a sportsmanlike thing to do in like any sense of that word, right? Right, because he, he wasn't acknowledging the punishment, right? Like, if, no, if you he know, stayed on the field. He didn't go back to the locker room, to the changing yeah. room, dressing room, whatever you want to call it. He stayed on the field to watch the, to enjoy the repercussions of his actions. Right. You know, and the use of the word enjoy there almost brings out the kind of sadistic nature of this, right? Like he, he got punished and he enjoyed it in a weird way. Um, so, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I don't know, Bill, do you want to put a, a period on this discussion for us? Uh, besides the fact he has a teething problem, um, I mean, it's, it's interesting how he's not done this as in, in recent times. I think maybe, for better or for worse, playing with Barcelona means he's less prone to cheating to, to that degree. And it might just be that he plays with better players now. I don't know. But it's nice to see that he's sort of making a mark with uh, legal huh, means. A mark. He's not? I said, huh, making a mark. Oh, I mean, sure, that too, but, uh, uh, you know. This coconut water's got you on another level today, Nick. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's it's very hard. He's one of those enigmatic players that I don't think we'll ever understand. Um, and it'd be great for a biopic, actually. So, but who knows? The Luis Suarez biopic is definitely one that I would watch. <laughs> Depending on who is who is cast as uh Luis Suarez, I don't know, but that's it. <laughs> the, the, we could we could have the bio the soccer biopic fantasy discussion uh, potentially on another podcast. Uh, Wait, Nick, who would you cast as Luis Suarez? Just who would I cast as Luis Suarez? <laughs> Ooh, um, probably Oscar Isaac. <laughs> so, see, I kind of want to see Javier Bardem. A 50-year-old Javier Bardem <laughs> playing Luis Suarez. Yeah. Or, like, go totally out of the bar park and go, like, Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> Can you just... <laughs> I'd have to be, like, a real Heath Ledger-type transformation. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Jared Wahlberg. Leto. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. That's so bad. All right. Bill, do you have any uh, soccer hot takes for us? Uh, controversial opinions? Unpopular yeah. opinions? Let's do this. Um, I don't know how much you guys have talked about Jose Mourinho recently, but um, I want to say he's done a terrific job at Spurs. Um, I, I, I'm, I've had a lot of experience with him uh, as a Chelsea fan, both good and bad. But um, I, I'd say that, yeah, I think he's sort of taken this team to what it did the best of its abilities. And the fact that they're fighting for a Champions League spot is incredible. I'm actually, I'm actually, I'm with you there. I think this Mourinho team has the least amount of elements of a typical Mourinho side that he's had to play with. I think the, the most typical Mourinho player in that setup is Eric Dyer. And I don't think he knows really what to do with players like Steven Bergwijn. Obviously he signed him, but players like Lucas Mora, players like Kuhn Minson, and he's had to deal with so many so many injuries to key players in that setup and also the departure of Christian Eriksen that the talent and the structure of that team 
and what he's been able to do with it are impressive. I so I just want to I I I'm not opposed to saying that he hasn't been fine. I would say that he hasn't done great though, because if you look at their record since he was appointed, they've lost to United, Bayern, Chelsea twice, Southampton, Liverpool, uh, Leipzig twice, uh, Wolves, Norwich on penalties, and uh, they've drawn with Burnley. And frankly, in their just their last six games, uh, they were winless. So I do think that he's somewhat of a victim of circumstance, given that they are without Harry Kane. Uh, they lost their main uh, goal scorer. They've also been without Huenmin San at points because of suspensions. But I don't think that he's... I think when he took the job, we thought we might be seeing a new Mourinho, a sort of happier, jovial, down-to-earth Mourinho. But as soon as, as, soon as, uh, as soon as Spurs hit a bad run of form, it seems like he was back to his old you know, bag of tricks, blaming everything from the ball boy to the ref to, you know, the weather. So I I think that he definitely has work to do. And I definitely believe he can succeed at Spurs, but I wouldn't say that he's been, uh, you know, great so far. Well, what I want to say, though, I think he's not criticizing the players the same extent that he had at, say, Chelsea, at United, at Real, certainly. And I, I think that's kind of incredible. I mean, this team really, I think has outperformed significantly over the past few years. And I just, this team has no character. I think the fact that they lost to Wolves is actually representative of the quality that they have as a team. The fact that they lost to United again and Chelsea, the, the, this team is not great. This it, They should be fighting for potentially a mid table spot come, you know, whenever the season finishes, but they're not. And I think that is something that, gets a little bit overlooked. Yeah, I mean, I think he's done a solid job keeping Spurs afloat. Like, functionally this year, they've lost three out of their four main attacking options from the last several years, certainly that were at the crux of the attack during the Pochettino era. Then they lost one of their attacking replacements in Bergvine to injury. In fact, if there was any team that will benefit most from having this break in play, it's Spurs, because they'll have a chance to get some of these people fit. And I think it's only once we actually have the squad that we can really sort of like best evaluate how Mourinho has done. Because the thing is, this squad doesn't even have a backup striker. Like he's had to play like Deli Ali as an out and out striker the last several games. And that's just like, you know, that's not good. And certainly I don't think he's going to put Parrot. What's his first name? Troy. 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 Yeah. Yeah. He's not going to put like Troy Parrot is not the next Harry Kane. Okay. Let's like, let's not pretend. Whoa, 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 you don't know that. Yeah, we don't. He's 17 years old. I think that's the problem, is that he truly has no... Like, last season, they had Fernando Llorente to right. kind of plug into that Pochettino system of having a player who can hold the ball up for various wingers. The other thing is that Mourinho's sides typically play with more inside forwards. They don't play with out-and-out wingers like Spurs do. Spurs very much rely on the Lucas Moras, the Hunmansons, to give them that width. And those Mourinho teams, we've typically seen them have the likes of Eden Hazard, even Cristiano Ronaldo, who are more able and capable of cutting in on the inside and playing very close to the striker or even playing in that sort of right off the number nine that he doesn't have in this side. Yeah, Yeah, I think we've seen a bit of regression to the mean because we have been pretty vocal about thinking that Spurs have been overperforming or have, you know, had they reached their, their peak with last year's Champions League run. So it makes sense 
that there was going to be regression this year. And that started, you know, with Pochettino. I think Pochettino found it hard as well. So I think, I think Mourinho has done a fine job. I don't think, I, I think that, you know, it's, it's too early to judge just because, you know, one bad run of form at this point in the season after he's only had what three and a half months with the team would be a little harsh to say that he's, he's failed, but I definitely think that there's more that he can do and we'll be able to see that um, when he gets time in the transfer window, once he can sort out his defense. Cause I mean, they're going to lose at least one of their uh, two Dutch center backs or Belgian center backs this summer as well um, on a free. And so I think that there's, we're going to see the the true value of the Mourinho rebuild once he can start getting some fresh faces in. Wait, this is a really random thought, but you're just talking about free transfers got me thinking. What happens if the season is like still going when like the July 30th deadline hits and all these people's contracts run out? So FIFA today said that um, it would be the players would have to stay at their clubs even if they were out of contract. This was sort of a this was sort of a response to Pedro, the rumors that Pedro was going to be canceling his contract with Chelsea. Um, but players would have to stay with their club until the uh, current season is finished. Oh, very good. Thank you. Bill, how do you, as sort of a self-proclaimed uh, Mourinho expert, being a Chelsea fan and having lived under his, his uh, reign for as long as you have, how do you foresee him picking up the pieces at Spurs and rebuilding it in his image? Well, I think it starts, first of all, with getting a new goalkeeper. Um, I, I, you know, Lloris is, is done. I, I, I truly think that that might not be a sustainable path. Otherwise, I think starting from the back and, you know, building a strong defense as he normally does uh, is definitely the way forward. I, in terms of goalkeepers to look out for, I, I quite like uh, Paulo Lopez at Roma. I think he's uh, he's someone who can definitely fill in the job, and he doesn't have necessarily an ego uh, that uh, say um, some other goalkeepers do have. Uh, I think then you probably want to build uh, a uh, pair of backs that also work well. I think replacing Kieran Trippier as well—that's something that didn't do this year. That's certainly something. Uh, that uh, Mourinho definitely needs to focus on uh, for the future, no doubt. Nice. Shall we get on to uh, my unpopular opinion? Please. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Uh, I think this is going to aggravate at least one person I know on this podcast, but my unpopular opinion is that without being put in the right situations at all the clubs and financial situations that he's been at, throughout his career, Pep Guardiola is actually not that great of a coach. That is the spiciest take of all of ours, for sure. Do we think he's a great coach? Yes. yes. But do I think he has benefited tremendously from first starting out at Barcelona, then going to Bayern Munich, then going to perhaps the richest situation of them all at Manchester City and building and being able to spend hundreds of millions of pounds on fullbacks alone yes do i think he'd be able to do this at a mid-table side and achieve success no i don't well yeah he's not winning the champions league with a mid-table side um i i will say okay i'll say a few things (laughs) one i think we can't fully hold like the circumstances he's gotten like against him because they just are a fact and i'm not i'm not (laughs) 
Um, so we need to be able to evaluate him in the context that he's actually been put in. And I think starting at Barcelona, you know, he was instrumental. And I think all of the players in that golden era of Barcelona from like 2009 to 2012 would say that that team would not have worked the way it had worked without uh, Guardiola. I mean, it was Guardiola who put Messi in the false nine which was a big move that powered that even after they signed Ibrahimovic. And that's part of the reason why Ibrahimovic left because Guardiola made a choice to make Messi the focal point of the center of the attack rather than Ibra. Um, So I I think the one thing you can really hold against him is the fact that he hasn't been to a Champions League final since uh, leaving Barcelona. Um, And given the all the money and all of the high quality players he's had to work with at both Bayern and City um it is not the best look that he hasn't been able to like get over the hill with another side yeah um, I th- sorry I but I I'll, I'll and I'll say one more thing though that said also I think he still is like a really really excellent man manager and tactician and I think we can look to a player like Raheem Sterling um, as like an example of that because Raheem Sterling even at the end of his time at Liverpool was still a very raw prospect and did not have a lot of end product but under Guardiola's tutelage he's really turned into like a killer wide attacker um, and I think we do have to give a lot of the credit to Guardiola for that. I think it's also important to note that part of what makes him a master tactician his tactics depend on having players of a certain technical ability. I don't think that it's fair to him to say like, okay, now you're going to go manage Burnley and try to get them to play Tiki Taka. Because I think that, you know, he as a person has sought out teams and especially with this current Man City project where he's able to take these already, these, these players who are at a certain level and use their talents to fit his vision. Um, and so I don't, I definitely think that his brand of soccer is some of the most aesthetically pleasing soccer when it's, when it's flowing, when city were informed last year, uh, it was some of the nicest, the nicest soccer. I mean, that I've ever seen, like going back to his Barcelona times, you were, you would see man city, no matter who they had playing, whether it was Phil Foden in his few appearances or Raheem Sterling or Riyad Mahrez. They were just running over teams left and right. Teams just couldn't figure it out. And I think that when Pep Guardiola's teams perform their best, his brand of soccer is unstoppable. I definitely think it's fair to levy criticisms of him in terms of his ability to motivate his teams and to select his teams on the biggest of stages. And we've seen that in the quarterfinal and semifinals of the Champions League at Bayern and Man City over the past you know, six years. I don't know. I think it's a real shame, though, that um, the Champions League sort of got suspended when it did, because the way they went to Madrid um, was and then sort of dominated really the game and came away deservedly as victors. I think says a lot. I think this this is probably the year Pep could win the Champions League um, with City, obviously, because of the the suspension of the team. But um, but I think this is the, this is probably the most potent side he's ever had. It just, and this is built. This team is built for European uh, football, like no other team has. It's sort of 
he has the cogs. He has people who are able to um, play bit roles. I mean, Silva's no longer a starting player. By that, I mean uh, David Silva. Um, but he's playing when he needs to. Um, you have De Bruyne, you have um, Bernardo Silva, and you have um, uh, Rodri also, who's a superb uh, bit player as well, along with Gundogan. I, I don't know. I, I don't want to write him off um, as sort of being a symbol of the past. I think it's, it's, it's hard. He's sort of stuck in a moment. And it's, it's a shame the pause came when it did because, damn, I really wish I'd, I'd love to see how the season plays out because I, I, I think City could win it all this year. I think it's definitely a shame that we're not going to get to see the fruits of Man City's labor in the Champions League because I do kind of agree that they were on pace to at least get to the semifinals of the competition by the way that they were playing. And I don't mean to say that like Pep Guardiola is... A, his style is is a poor style and he's a bad coach. I by no means am saying that he's um he's he's bad at his job. What I mean to say is that I think he lives by his by Tiki Taka, by his way of understanding the game, but he also dies by that as well, and that he's not as adaptable as other top coaches. And I think that sort of that one major flaw of his management style has been uh, papered over by the fact that he's been able to get so much quality in and around his teams at all times. And I think back to one moment uh, earlier on this season, it was over the holiday fixture break around December 26th to the 28th against Wolves. And uh, Man City desperately needed to get a result away at Wolves in order to keep up the pace with Liverpool. And uh, it, Benjamin Mendy was attempting to uh, play a ball out of the back. And instead of doing the standard what any other defender would have done and just kind of clearing the ball, clearing his lines, making sure there's no danger, not taking the risk. He instead tried to do what I imagine any defender in the Pep Guardiola setup would do. And that was try and find the closest person, the center defensive midfielder, the Rodri, the Gundogan, uh, the person in front of him to pass the ball out of the back. And in doing so, and in that split second of indecision and in trying to uh, stick to Pep style, he got caught by Adama Traore and that, uh, mistake was converted into the winning goal for Wolves. So I think he lives and dies by his style. And I think there are times when his unwillingness to adapt gets him in trouble. No, right. The most uncharitable way to like put how Guardiola thinks about soccer is that scene from Indiana Jones where the guy is like <laughs> winging the sword around, <laughs> right? Jesus and then, Christ. And then Indiana Jones just shoots him with a pistol. And I think that's how Jurgen Klopp has sort of managed to best Guardiola in a lot of their most recent encounters is by playing very direct football, coming at them, pressing at them, and making Man City, forcing Man City into making mistakes because they're trying to keep up with that same style that has won them so many games. This is, I mean, and this is sort of this decade's iteration of what was happening in in the 2000s with Wenger versus Ferguson where Arsenal were playing this very intricate 4-2-3-1, and Arsene Wenger was the guy who really popularized that in the Premier League, and he would be consistently foiled by a United squad that, while they did have incredibly talented players, including Cristiano Ronaldo, um, they would play this this 4-4-2 that seemed to work every single time. And in this analogy, uh, United are Liverpool, which I know might put you um, ill at ease, but... It seems like for every great tactician, there is, there is, their their one nemesis, um, and 
you know, for, for Wenger, it was Ferguson and occasionally Mourinho. And, and for Guardiola, it's certainly been Klopp. And that's been consistent going all the way back to 2012 in Germany. I just think about a player like Jordan Henderson, who I think Pep Guardiola would have arrived at Liverpool and said that Jordan Henderson wasn't good enough. And we'd be seeing Jordan Henderson playing at Burnley or playing at Stoke with Joe Allen by now. And I think you look at Jurgen Klopp, who came into Liverpool, saw something that maybe the certainly the three of us, the three hosts of Corner Kick, didn't see in Jordan Henderson not five years ago, and crafted a player out of him. Really stuck with Jordan Henderson, stuck with his mistakes, and made him into the all-around dominant midfield player that he is now. And I just don't know if Pep would have been willing to be patient enough and willing enough to adapt for the circumstance of people like Jordan Henderson, people like Benjamin Mendy, et cetera, et cetera. So as we did uh, in our first episode that we recorded via Zencaster um, during this quarantine, we've decided to take a look back at some of uh, the world's best soccer games, the most rewatchable soccer games. Welcome to what's now a reoccurring segment, Corner Kick Retakes, where we at Corner Kick describe some matches or moments that are worth revisiting in this time of no live football. Last time we talked about uh, results that ranged from a World Cup final to a Champions League semifinal to comebacks galore. What do we have in store for us today? Nick, why don't we start with you? Don't start with me. All right, Caleb, why don't we start with you? <laughs> well, wow. I love I love being uh you know the second choice. Uh, that's okay. Well, Nick's been going Nick's been going last all the other times. I figured No, no, no. Yeah. Nathan, it's 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 been done. Um okay. <laughs> Caleb, why don't we start with you? Okay. Thank you, Nick. I'm glad <laughs> someone recognizes me. Um so the game I am highlighting is not from, you know, the knockout stages of the World Cup or the Champions League. And it's not between two particularly good teams. Interpret this as you will. Um, It is the Carabao Cup fourth round match between uh, Reading and Arsenal from 2012, when it was probably still called the Carling Cup, maybe? Wasn't this the Um, FA Cup? No, this wasn't the FA Cup. No, this, this is the League Cup. Oh, it was? No. This, I thought really? this was in the FA Cup. Nope. It I'm, was the League Cup, um, oh, at, which at that point was called... Okay, so it's saying it was called the Car- the Capital One Cup. Oh, the Capital oh, One Cup. Oh, the Capital One Cup. Of course, oh, the, I remember. The cup in between the Carling Cup and the Carabao yes, Cup. Yes, and the Carabao Cup. Okay, and well, regardless... Carabao and post-Carling. Yes. I'm glad we started that out. Um, A biblical middle period of middling sponsors. Yes, exactly. For a wonderful cup competition. So this game between Reading and Arsenal. Arsenal were the away team. um, And Reading were a championship side. Um, Right? Yeah. Um, No, this is when Reading were in the Prem. Okay, never mind. But they weren't good. The point is they weren't a Champions League team like <laughs> Arsenal were at this point. But somehow Reading go up uh, 4-0 um, or 4-1 at the end of the first half with Roberts uh, scoring in the 12th. Koscielny scored in the 18th. Uh, Leijert Wood scored in the 20th. Nathan Hunt in the 37th. And then Walcott 
put one back um, in the 47th minute. Then Arsenal embarked on a huge comeback in the second half, uh, tying it at 4-4 at full time. Then in extra time, uh, Arsenal eventually pulled ahead, and the final score was 7-5, with Walcott ultimately getting a hat trick um, and Shamak scoring a brace in extra time. But it was just a shocking game, not only for the fact that 12 goals were scored, but also to have such a high-scoring tie between Reading and Arsenal um, was just very strange um, and kind of wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. I did not watch that game live, but I have watched the highlights of it multiple times. It's definitely one of the crazier games just because how often do you see a 7-5 game and the fact that Arsenal came back with such little time remaining. It's also interesting to look at the Arsenal bench that day Hector Bellerin and Olivier Giroud were both on the bench that day, and Serge Gnabry made one of his first and only first-team appearances as a 17-year-old for Arsenal. So definitely, in the grand scheme of things, maybe not the most important game ever, but it certainly is one for the record books with that eye-popping scoreline. Yeah, so that's my corner kick retake. Nathan, Uh, what is your corner kick retake? Oh, so there were a couple that I was deliberating between, but... My corner kick retake is the Champions League final between Real Madrid and Juventus. And I think part of the reason that I look back so fondly on that game is because of the time and circumstances in which I watched it. And I mean, we watched this game together um, and none of us were too enthused at the teams that were playing in it. Um, You know, Caleb being a Barcelona fan and all of us being, you know, fairly unenthused by Juventus. We, we sort of all gradually uh, threw our weight behind Juve um, in that game. And you look at the goals that were scored in that game, really what could be you know a career-defining bicycle kick in a Champions League final from Gareth Bale. Um, the overall entertainment value, it had a, a red card in the 83rd minute from Quadrado. Um, but what sticks out for me was just Caleb... Wait, you mean Mandzukic, right? Oh, sorry, I mean Mandzukic. Um, and the game, the, the, what really stands out to me about that game is watching it with Caleb and seeing him grow more and more frustrated and sort of like depleted as the afternoon went on. Um, and it's sort of, it, it's something that we can laugh at now, but it was definitely um, one of the better Champions League finals because the the year before we had seen Real Madrid versus Atletico Madrid play to, a uh, you know, 120 minutes of, of almost nothing. Uh, and so to watch that during our senior spring was definitely one of the more uh, exciting soccer experiences. And while, of course, we all know the outcome and it was a historic win for Real Madrid to add to their mounting cabinet of uh, Champions League trophies, the circumstances around it made it a really uh, pleasant and fun game to watch all in all. Uh, Bill, do you have a corner kick retake for us? I do. I do. Let me set the scene for you. Okay, it's 2012, and it's not the Champions League. Um, And there's a team in England that's blue and Manchester looking for its first uh, Premier League title ever. And they're playing against QPR. And, well, they should win. And then they're not winning. And then they come back. And then you hear that amazing Andy, not Andy Gray, uh, Martin Tyler uh, screaming moment where he shouts Sergio Aguero's name. And then you have an entire stadium go completely crazy. And then it cuts immediately 
uh, the TV screen cuts immediately to uh, Sunderland, where Manchester United had just finished the game uh, 1-0. And then you see Wayne Rooney's head look down towards the ground in disgust. And then you pan back to Man City, and it's crazy, and it's bedlam. I don't think any other single game has meant so much or has had such a, a switch in uh, energy, uh, at least in, in modern history. I think, when, when when did Aguero score that goal? I think it was the 93rd 94th minute. 94th minute, 93rd 94th. minute. 94th, yeah. It's, I, there was the, that singular moment of greatness. And I, I mean, I hate Man City with all my heart, um, as any self-respecting um, football fan should. Um, but there's just something about coming back to win something for the first time and to win it in the way that they did, uh, that uh, is certainly something that can be rewatched over and over again. Right. I think that is going to be one of the defining moments of English soccer history. Certainly the defining moment of the Premier League era, that and probably Leicester lifting the title in 2016. Um, but I still remember the, I think Martin Tyler is still probably shouting Aguero to this day. <laughs> uh, he's still, he's still on the call there. Uh, the O's have rattled on uh, ever since that moment, but my corner kick retake, I have uh, about 1.5 retakes for it today. <laughs> it was hard. It was hard for me to truncate um, my decision today, but my game is from a similar period in English soccer history uh, 2013, uh, cast your minds to a two-legged championship playoff affair between Leicester City and Watford. It's the 90th minute at Watford. It is 2-2 on aggregate, um, and both these sides are vying for a spot at Wembley in order to send them to the Premier League, and Anthony Knockhart comes up to take a penalty. It's the 90th minute. In every other universe, Knockhart sends this top corner and the Leicester City go wheeling away to Wembley for a chance to play for promotion. Knockhart takes potentially the most tame, worst penalty you have ever seen in your life, and it's saved by Almunia. Almunia hoofs the ball up the field to an onrushing Watford winger. The Watford winger crosses the ball into club legend, club hero, Watford hero, Troy Deeney, who sends Watford into the playoff final in the 97th minute, 3-2 on aggregate. Regardless of the final moment of this game, this entire 90 minutes is worth watching. It's back and forth. It's championship soccer, but it is still good quality, entertaining soccer that means everything for the 22 players playing out on the pitch in these moments. And this is obviously before the great triumph of Leicester City. So there's no need to feel sorry for them because we know what's coming down the road for them in the next three years. And obviously both of these teams are playing in the Premier League today. But this is a good look back in a very, very tense moment in history. My point five or my half corner kick retake is for perhaps those of you who don't have the time in your day to uh, watch a full game of soccer. But I would like to cast your minds to, uh, to Germany. For, for a bit um, it's halftime in 2015 between Bayern Munich and Wolfsburg at the half Pep Guardiola decides to uh, send on Robert Lewandowski 
to attempt to change the fortunes of his Bayern Munich side who are trailing uh, 1-0 to Wolfsburg at home. And uh, by the 54th minute, it is Bayern Munich 5, Wolfsburg 1, and in nine minutes, Robert Lewandowski has scored five goals. So if you have nine free minutes in your day, the full unedited nine minutes of Robert Lewandowski scoring five goals in a mere nine minutes, it's all on YouTube on the Bundesliga's YouTube channel. I recommend that you go and watch this. It is just incredible and the most lethal display of finishing from a striker that I have perhaps ever seen and perhaps will ever be done again. Yeah, I think this that moment is what I'll turn to when I say that Lewandowski has been probably Europe's most consistent striker of the decade. Uh, which I mean, from you know 2011 to, to 2020, Lewandowski was if not the best, then one of the top two or three alongside Aguero and Suarez. Um, he's His ability to score from situations in front of goal, his ability to contort his body to get on the end of crosses is ridiculous. And his stature helps. He scores headed goals. He scores all kinds of goals. Um, and so that is certainly just, a. Re- I mean, I don't know if that will ever happen again in a major league ever. All right. I think that is going to be corner kick for this week. We have given you a uh, fiery, exactly an hour of uh, scintillating soccer discussion for your quarantine needs. But uh, it's been a pleasure to have Bill Gallagher here with us today. He's been an immense contributor uh, to this episode, and we hope to have him back. And uh, man, thank you for joining us, Bill. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you, guys. I had a lot of fun. It's it's not much uh, else going on. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, best of luck to Chelsea if uh, this season does resume. I do hope Frank and the boys can uh, can can pull away for a European place next season, if there is a next season uh, that starts <laughs> up uh, when we think it should maybe start. Fingers crossed. Oh, God, we're going to need it. Frank and the boys. Kind of like that. It's catchy. Frank and the boys with Hakim Ziyech next season. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. That, I mean, if he gets there by July 1st and the season's <laughs> not still ongoing. <laughs> oh, but yeah. But thanks again to Bill. I've been Nick Vinden. I'm Caleb Rhodes. Nathan Strauss. And we will see you all next time. Stay safe. Wash your hands. <laughs>